Today we're in Ephesians chapter 5, starting chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to stop at 7 then, okay? So here we go. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. So, you know, Paul continues to kind of talk about different things and, and uh, you know, the putting on, the putting off, the sins, all of that type of stuff. So here's kind of some background that we didn't give on Ephesus. Ephesus had the temple to, to Artemis, and uh, it was actually, it's now in a swamp. Everything in Ephesus has been discovered, you know, archaeological, they've been able to dig it up. But the temple, the temple itself, which was at one time one considered one of the seven wonders of the world, sunk into a swamp. It's gone. Kind of ironic, isn't it? But it was 10 times larger, like the Parthenon that we had in Greek. This was the house of basically all paganism and all worship of other gods and study of other gods. And in fact, it was so much the central spot that it would not surprise historians if Paul actually preached in there because even other schools of thought were allowed to come and learn in there. And so he could have been preaching from the steps of this temple, even. This place was surrounded they they had at one time a uh, historian wrote secular historian wrote in that early century um, around Paul's time over 50 unique ethnicities within the city of Ephesus so when Paul is discussing Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile he didn't mean just Greek some translations say Greek some say Gentile because it was a summary of everybody else it was Jew and everybody else. So it included all the different ethnicities. It wasn't just a conversation between two different ethnicities. And so that's some of the background here. And so now he's gone from chapter four, which was this discussion. Uh, he was discussing the concept of our calling in Christ to now we move to our walk and our work in Christ, right? Or our walk in Christ, our walking in the nature of Christ and what he's called us to be. And so we'll see kind of a threefold in this passage, um, three different kind of things. One, to walk in love and not lust, and that's what we're going to kind of talk about today. Uh, the next one is to walk in light and not darkness. And then the other one is to walk in wisdom and not folly. Those are the three ways that we walk when we walk in Christ. We walk with Christ. Good morning, Sharon. We walk 
in love, not lust, light, not darkness, and wisdom, not folly. We're called to be imitators of Christ. And uh, chapter four ends with this picture of being imitators of Christ in forgiveness. And we talked some about that yesterday. And now we're called to imitate not just the forgiveness, but imitate the love of God. First John 4, 8 says God is love. That's, it's not just an attribute. It is God. Walking in love is walking in God. Love for God and for others, all others, is the biblical, you know, what do you want to call it, depending on where you grew up, acid test, litmus test. Um, it, it was the test of a believer. Walking in love, the love of God towards everyone else is kind of the litmus test of our salvation, right? You know, the latter, the love is the evidence of that act of salvation and growing in sanctification that takes place in our lives. But it, it, it serves a definition because our world is surrounded by this terminology of love, right? I, I mean, turn on the news, turn, you know, turn on songs. All we need is love, 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 you know, or more than a feeling. Yeah, we, we could just go on and on about all these different songs. Some of them are great. Some of them are country songs that depress you about love, right? It's fleeting. I, I, I lost my wife, lost my truck. She took my dog. And that's the thing I care about the most. Or, you know, I... Sorry if you love country, uh, you know, what can I say? Um, but we're surrounded by it in songs. We're surrounded by it in books. We're surrounded by it in movies. Turn on TV for just a few seconds and you are surrounded by a picture of love. And it's not even a true definition or a true picture of love. We, we say we love our spouse and then we say we love our potato chips. We, we live in a culture that is so muddled and confused about love. It begins to grow muddy and the meaning begins to have no value. We throw it around flippantly. So Paul is concerned that uh, their expression and our expression of love is appropriate. So Greeks actually were very interested in love, so much so yeah, Hallmark. There you go, Katie. Yeah. Every Hallmark show gives this picture of love. And if you're broken, then all of a sudden you're going to be, you know, you're going to run into that guy that you hate. And then all of a sudden you're going to love him and fall in love and marry and be happy, happily ever after. Right. I mean, that's the, uh, um, sorry, mom. I know we love, we know you love your Hallmark shows. Uh, but that's that picture, that's that false picture, or even the false picture of the erotic love that is in our movies, in our TV shows, or in our books, that they just throw it around flippantly. So the Greeks were very conscious that love needed definition, and they had four words, four words for love. And the first was storge. Storge was this type of love. It's not used in the Bible, but it's a type of love for an inanimate object or an unhuman object, so even animals, right? It was a love for animals. You can love, we, we have two bunnies now. Yeah, somehow we got two. Uh, but we have two bunnies now, and our kids love those bunnies. They love them. It's a form of love. They love that animal. Then there's that idea of eros. Eros is the romantic love. It's the love between a husband and wife. It's the uh, 
the the word that's often you know sometimes used, uh, but that is erotic is where we get that word from, right? So it's eros, it's romantic love. The other one is filio. Filio is brotherly love, brotherly or sisterly love. It's the love of a family member or a friend, a close friend. And then the last one that is often used in scripture is the word agape. Uh, agape is is this word of like perfect love, right? The undying, unending love. That's agape love. It's the love of God towards us that is our example. When we love others, our example is to love undyingly. Love is patient. Love is kind. I, you know, First Corinthians thirteen. And so we live in a culture that has an incorrect definition of love. So when we believe that we've become children of God, when we have become the beloved children of God, then we begin to be partakers in that divine nature. We put on Christ, right? Second Peter 1.4 talks about that putting on the nature of Christ. We are partakers in his divine nature. So if God is love and Christians are his children who partake in his nature, then our conduct should reflect it, right? Our conduct should reflect love to all. Love, compassion, empathy. We should be imitators the word imitator meant to mimic, to mimic. So it was this idea of the theater and, you know, you would get actors up there that would portray someone else. Um, you know, we, we could, uh, um, you know, Will Smith portrayed Muhammad Ali. He wasn't really Muhammad Ali, but he portrayed Muhammad Ali in that movie, right? Um, you know, we could, we could list other times where individuals portrayed someone else. They mimicked, they portrayed, they learned all there was about them. In fact, sometimes too much so. Um, Jim Carrey is an actor that's out there, and there was a movie where he played Andy uh, um, Andy Warhol, right? I believe is the, the name, and uh, Man on the Moon. And Andy was a very unique individual who ended up, uh, if I remember the story right, and I, I may not, um, Andy took his own life or, or drugs or something along that line. So I, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't remember that because I wasn't planning on saying this, but, but Jim Carrey became that character so much so that it actually affected him. It changed him. It changed his moods. It changed his personality. Now that's a negative sense of mimicry and imitation, but yet that's what we are called as Christ that we mimic so much. We reflect the, our God and our relationship with God so much that it changes us, changes our nature, our personality. We begin to love, we begin to love more deeply, undying, undeserved love. Children imitate our parents. If we love and respect God, then we should imitate him should imitate him. We walk in the life of love, which is growing in sanctification, but it's God-given. 
He's the one who puts it on us, right? We, we get to accept that. Good morning, Valerie. And so we accept the love of God and we imitate him and we grow in his love more and more. And then in that walking of sanctification, then we grow in God-given perfection. Now, now here's the thing. We've talked about this before. I won't go into big detail on it, but when it came to sanctification, there was a term that we called eradication where you could be free of sin, and, and, and that's not biblical, and, and it's been knocked out of the Nazarene theology, the Wesleyan theology. We don't use that term because we are not eradicated from sin this side of heaven. But complete, entire sanctification comes when God is the one that we are seeking to imitate. And we may fall to those temptations and things back here every now and then, but they are not our primary focus. It is this unintentional falling that gets in the way, but we still continue to strive to be more and more and more and more <laughs> like our God. And so when we talk about perfection, let me define it here. It's a blameless perfection. The blamelessness comes because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the atoning blood of the Lamb that is on us. It makes us blameless in God's sight. It is not a faultless perfection. In a reform-style mentality and, and um, I'll just say it, okay? Um, as I've I've been in different circles, talked with different people throughout even the, the issues going on right now in our culture, um, those that want to just ignore it and that often think that this is just a fluke, it's stupid, and they just want it to go away when it comes to the um, racial equality that individuals are protesting for, tend to be more on the Reformed side. And the reform side says either you're chosen or you're not. So it really doesn't matter. It, it, I don't need to evangelize. I, I don't need to witness. Now I'm taking it to a far extreme. Um, and, uh, you know, I will remind you, John Wesley grew up more in that Calvinistic mindset um, than he did in Arminian. Okay. We were what were Wesleyan Arminians. We we're middle roaders. Um, but in that strong five point tulip, it begins to create a what the holiness movement created in legalism, a holier than thou, better than thou. And so instead of seeing ourselves as blameless only because of what Christ did for us and therefore so overly moved by awe and wonder at the work of what God did that we want to be different and imitate him, instead we see it as a faultless perfection. So how dare you question me? How dare you question my ideals? How dare you question and say that something else, that I might actually have some hidden um, prejudices that I've never even thought about in the way that I act, or that we might actually have a culture that is got some hidden racism or systematic racism where, cult, where, where systems were set up to be racist. So how dare we do that? I mean, because we were, we were founded on a Christian nation. And by the way, can, can I just challenge you a little bit? Yes, we were. There's no doubt on in that. 
But as I said yesterday, the Virginia Assembly, long before the Constitution, the church got together and made rules about the legitimacy of the human nature within slaves in the early 1600s. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield both owned slaves. And, and those are two of my heroes. But yet they own slaves. Now, does that make them evil? No. You know, John, uh, John, um, yeah, John Newton, right? You know, Amazing Grace. He was saved and didn't leave the slave trade for about seven years. And only then because he had a stroke. And it was another 30 years before he came out against the slave trade. His heart changed drastically at the end of life. But just because someone is a believer doesn't mean they're all 100% imitators of Christ. We all are broken and faultless, or broken and not faultless, right? Those are the histories that we sometimes, that's the terminology of the whitewashing. You know, Rosa Parks was not just some old lady who was just too tired to move. <laughs> She'd had it. <laughs> She'd had enough and she was going to stand up. Right? That's the truth that sometimes we ignore. And, and we are called as believers to see our blamelessness that comes only from Christ not the faultlessness, because we are not faultless. If we see ourselves as faultless in any way, shape, or form, then maybe you could say the love of Christ is not in us. We are called to imitate the sacrificial love of God. Be committed to the refusal of to sin. It's a choice that we refuse not to fall to sin. We will, but we can do it less and less and less when our focus is on God. And I'm not saying you fall to big sins, adultery, those things, but you may fall to gossip, to slander, Paul then goes on to warn again about the recontamination of our spirits and our lives by those pagan views, those unholy attitudes. To catch that, a recontamination that 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 even after believing, because I love it. C.S. Lewis put it in the Screw Tape Letters. It's this conversation between a demon that's tempting and like his head demon. And and at one point it's, you know what, we might have lost the individual. They might have gotten saved, but we can make them ineffective. And that's what Satan loves to do in our lives is to recontaminate us, to make us ineffective, to gossip, to slander, to unholy attitudes towards one another. Those inappropriate actions should not be tolerated in our lives. You know, he starts out in the list, by the way, these are lists of things in the pagan culture, starting with their order of it, which is why you see these things listed as you do. But first, the sexual immoralities and covetousness. They're the springboards of pretty much all the others. It's, it's the sin of the flesh, sexual, and sin of the mind, covetousness. That just sums it all up right there. They all come from that. Dare I say, even the faultless 
perfection ideas come from the covetousness of my mind to want to be better than someone else, to see myself better than. You know, in those days, actually, so this is what was, as I was reading this, the culture of the Ephesians, what they lived in, and even within the early church. Now, this was not an okay to early church practice. This is what Paul was speaking against and why he brings this up so often. Their culture allowed, a man was allowed an affair as long as the woman was not married. The woman was not, but a man was allowed to have a mistress and, and, and to have a concubine. And Paul was preaching against that. Because that was the Greek culture. It was okay. Paul said, God does not okay these things. He goes on to this idea of foolish talking and crude jokes. And, you know, it reminds me of the verse, may the word of my words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. Because foolish talk is actually the, the word for foolish talk is the Greek word that we get moron from. I love that. that. That just is awesome, right? So if you get caught in foolish talk, you're being a moron, <laughs> you know, foolish talk, crude jokes, putting others down, being ungrateful. It's ridiculous, foolish posturing. Instead, we're to call to give thanks that that's the remedy. Unthankfulness and ungratitude can cause sin. Paul talks about that again in Romans. Romans 1.25 kind of describes that. Unthankfulness and un ingratitude ca can cause sin. It degrades us, but praise builds up our faith. We are called to be in and not of the world, partakers, right? Joint sharers in Christ, not of the world, not called to withdraw from the world, but to see our posture, our position, not in this world, but in a heavenly realm and a heavenly world that enables us to live differently here in this world. You know, fashion and beauty are fleeting. Self-worth degrades. These are the things our culture looks up to, by the way. This is uh, so fashion and beauty. We get those degrade. Those go away after a while. We age. And if our self-worth is based in our fashion and beauty, then we can lose our self-worth. If our, we, we look at it as celebrity worship, right? You know, we put people on pedestals, whether that be in our secular world or even in the church world. We put individuals on platforms. I know countless people who don't come to church because they put somebody on a platform and that person let them down. And instead of focusing on God, they focus on the human. We aren't to be imitators of you name it. Name your favorite Sunday school teacher. Name your, your favorite pastor. We are not to be imitators of them. You're not to be imitators of me. You are to be imitators of Christ. But when we put someone else on a pedestal, our self-value, because we aren't like them. We aren't good enough to be like them. It can degrade our self-value. If you put your focus on the, the things that are around us, you grow by watching movies all the time or watching pornography or watching horror that those things lead to that darkened mind and give a false view of the world around us contaminates and leads to a darkness not light and we'll talk more about that 
tomorrow. But our Christian, as a Christian, we're called to be Christ followers, follow biblical ideas. And those things are always under attack. They're always under attack. The world seeks to cause us to relax our morals and to begin to look like the world. To combat this, Paul reminds us of our status, our status and our vocation, our calling to live in Christ, to walk in Christ. He addresses these sayings by giving us a title, right? We are children of God. We're imitators of Christ. He reminds us of our gift, the gift of Christ, and that reminds us and should compel us to want to be different. He says that we are saints, quoting Psalms 147.20, that we are saints, we are set apart. The now and the not yet, we are saints, and we are God's treasure. We're his treasure. Now, that's not meant to inflate our egos, but we are God's treasure. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 14, 2 talk about that. And if we don't look and act different from the world, then the church, which is meant to be the hospital for the sick, well, you can't tell the difference between the sick and the doctors. And that makes for an issue. We are called to walk differently. You know, let me close with this. You know, he started out in, in verse 1, in verse 2, actually, sharing about Jesus who gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I, I love those words. The terminology, the pictures, and an offering and a sacrifice. The offering is what got, it was a gift that got brought to the temple to be sacrificed. And the sacrifice was the actual act of giving, okay? It illustrates our response to God's love. So offering is this word, um, prosphoron. Prosphoron, I probably pronounced that completely more uh, um, American than it was Greek. But prosphoron. And it's willing to see our lives as that sacrifice, that gift that is brought to God. We say, God, I want to imitate you. I want to be more like you. I want to walk in Christ for your will, your purpose, and your glory. And you see, the sacrificed, the sacrificed item, us, we must die. The sacrifice had to die. The sacrificial lamb didn't get up and return home. <laughs> the sacrificial lamb was consecrated and surrendered to God. It's complete control to be burnt up as a fragrant offering. We will never obtain a likeness to God until we become totally surrendered to him. It's that act of entire sanctification, completely surrendered to him and his will for his glory, that nothing of me remains. And the sacrifice is this word, thusian. Thusian, originally it was related to the smoke of the sacrifice, resulting from the sacrifice. It's that aroma, 
And no matter how often you throw an object up into the air, it's going to come back down, right? It's the law of gravity. You throw it up, it's going to come down. What goes up must come down. But this picture was made in the sacrifice of burning. Because when you burn it, it creates vapors. And those vapors rise up to heaven. That was how the sacrifice was to get to heaven, was the vapors, the aromas. Which is why, it, you know, in our early church traditions, we would often light candles in the midst of prayer. It was a symbol of the 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 fire of the Holy Spirit remembering and hearing our prayer. It was a visual. It was for us. It wasn't for God, right? It was just an act that we did of burning. And so you could see the smoke rising up to heaven. It comes from the Old Testament Levitical laws of sacrifice. It's where that came from. Our actions and our attitudes need burned up on an altar so they can be a pleasing aroma to God. So that's my call to you today. What do I need to surrender? What do I need to give up? What causes me to get angry in a destructive way, not constructive? Where do I find myself fighting when there's an when there's a discussion or a dialogue, where do I find myself shutting down any bit of dialogue? Not having empathy for the other side. What is it that we need to surrender in our lives? Because surrender is not a once and done act. It's continual, ongoing. Surrendering before God. So God, speak to us. Holy Spirit, Look into our lives, look into our hearts. Like the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Reveal the things that are keeping you at bay. Reveal the things that are in the way of our imitating you and you alone. Reveal the places where we have allowed our culture to permeate us and we are looking more like our culture than we are like you. Lord, remove our shortcomings. God, use us. We surrender ourselves to you as smoke, a sacrifice, burn up on the offering, a burnt offering that nothing is left of but the aroma, the smoke rising to you. Because when I die to myself, you live in me. I finally learn what it means to walk in you. Be patient with us, Lord. We're your children. Growing, learning, desiring more. We aren't perfect, but we serve a God who is. Take that sandpaper to the imperfections of our heart so we can be used for your glory, for your will, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Go in peace. Have a wonderful weekend.